Good morning. Let's turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to press on in our self-evaluation, how we're doing by this biblical checklist of the one another's. This whole long list which frames our understanding of loving one another. Had a good discussion about forgiveness last week. Any follow-up questions there? Any stories of forgiving someone in your row you want to share? (laughs) Caldwell's, uh, you can visit with them afterwards and be encouraged by it. (laughs) Uh, All right, well, keep wrestling with that. That will will be a daily, lifelong, even struggle to, uh, to grapple with our trusting God with things that are unresolved and yet doing our part to make sure... We try as, with all of our ability to resolve issues. Uh, we forgive others as we've been forgiven. Uh, can you think of any Bible examples? We didn't have time to get there, but any stories of forgiveness that stand out in Scripture? Off the top of your head. What was that? Oh, Joseph. Yeah, that might be the top of the list as far as the full details of the story and just driving home the, the faith in God's plan behind even the hardships that we endure. Anything else? Stories of forgiveness? All right, let's press on. Ephesians chapter 5, we come to another, one another, instruction in verse 19 where we're told, that we should be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, addressing one another. Perhaps your translation is speaking to one another. It's just a simple word to speak. Uh, So we're addressing one another. We're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, we had a pastor's fellowship this week uh, over in Lenexa, and each week they ha- or each month they have two pastors. You'll share like a 10-minute presentation. It'll be critiqued for 10 minutes, and then there's 30-minute conversation, and then you swap, and the other one would share. And then we have a little bit of lunch, and everybody gets home. Well, we talked about a couple different issues in the conversation time, but over lunch, we were sitting at a table with three or four others, and um, the conversation came out or came up because these brothers were in some some denomination of Presbyterianism. I not even something I'm familiar with, but they they're exclusively psalm singing and no instruments. Um, so while there wasn't much agreement at the table, it was interesting to hear both their heart for trying to understand worship um, and a little bit of explanation for more questions on our part to them. You know, what do you do with all the commands to use instruments in the Psalms and things like that and just trying to understand that mindset. So this, this text was fresh in my mind this week already and then that was added to it. We're to address one another, speak to one another in the Psalms, that biblical songbook, the hymns, the songs of the Spirit. Uh, let's, let's think through this a little bit. Um, 
this addressing to speak to each other. You're actually rehearsing truth and you're applying it in, in what we might call a, a palpable way. If, if in the congregational singing this morning, you kind of, you hear the sound, the fullness of it. Um, you, you may have spiritual vigor kind of welling up within you. You might be tapping your toe or feel goosebumps. There's all kinds of responses. So we, using the word palpable is probably valid to think there's almost a, an actual feeling of that communication in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's part of the beauty of congregational singing. The fact that we are actually saying things that are meant to be heard by the people around us. We often are maybe reminded of that when I mention something about singing. But that's because if we're not careful, we, we always think that when we gather to worship, there's this audience of one. And there is in the sense of the direction of the worth or the praise But clearly, Scripture says, when we are doing that, we are also speaking out for others to hear what is being said. And so this horizontal relationship where we are addressing one another through singing uh, is a significance in congregational singing. It has practical implications. Uh, Philosophically, this works its way out into, my understanding at least, If you're going to have instrumentation of any sort, ours or what other churches might have, it it cannot drown out the voice of someone addressing someone else in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Instrumentation doesn't address with truth, but voices articulating words of truth do. And so I would encourage any church, um, regardless of their instrumentation, to make sure every one of those musicians knows They are there to facilitate the beauty of this gift of music, but the primary sound needs to be the voice of the congregation. Um, And if you think of what is fundamental in Scripture, that congregational voice praising the Lord and speaking to each other, then the discussions of what kind of music can be at least secondary. Primary would be... What's most important? The voice of the congregation, praising the Lord and speaking to each other. And we see the other part of congregational singing's beauty, that vertical relationship in the rest of the verse. We're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, some people would argue, well, I don't sing, but my heart is making melody. Well, that's part of it. But singing and making melody with your heart is the whole package. Um, you might say, I, I just, I don't sing. I, I don't have a voice. Or um, I, I will always argue with you on that. Um, I, I think it's a learned thing more than you might realize. You may have not grown up with much music or singing. You might say, oh, I'm tone deaf. I can't carry it. Maybe. Um, but God says to sing. And so... Put those kind of thoughts out of your mind, and maybe you're not the loudest singer in the congregation, um, but at least be the loudest singer in your car or somewhere. Um, God's given you a voice, and he wants to hear it. He commands us to sing, and maybe that simply means even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Um, and just know someday you'll, you'll have a big bucket, and you'll carry a glorious tune. So, Roy, 
Uh-oh. Daniel, if you can be ready to remove Roy. <laughs> There you go. Uh, you've got rhythm and you've got music. <laughs> so addressing. Uh, I want to look at this word. We, we talked last time about participles. You remember that? Uh, maybe. Participles. Because if you look at verse nine, 19, you realize you're jumping into the middle of something. Addressing is a, a verb kind of look that looks like a verbal action, and yet it's, it's acting as an adjective dis, or an adverb describing something before. In this case, it's an adverb because it's describing a verb, and our question is, what verb is being described with this description of addressing one another? So we look back, and we read in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So there's our command. There's the main verb of the sentence. Be filled with the Spirit. And then we could ask questions like, well, when, or how, or why? And the description that comes next is going to unfold what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So be filled with the Spirit addressing one another. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. It's not the complete picture, but the point Paul is making here to the church at Ephesus is that one of the expressions of being filled with the Spirit is that you speak to one another in the beauty of musical truth. So another participle, it's describing how to be filled with the Spirit. It's telling us what it looks like. Uh, it's demonstrating the implications of being filled. So don't be drunk with wine. Don't be filled with wine so that your blood alcohol level starts taking over good brain function. You're, you've surrendered control to something else. Don't do that with wine, but instead surrender the control to the Spirit. Let the Spirit control you. Because if He is, then when you're belting it out on pitch or otherwise you are addressing others in God's truth and you're exhorting them, you're encouraging them, you're speaking to them. And frankly, if you think of the songs we sing that people are hearing you sing, you might not even say those kind of weighty spiritual truths in normal conversation. And yet when we sing and speak to each other in the hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, we're, we're getting to some real truth, um, and it might teach us a lesson. Maybe my conversation is, is just too casual. It, it never gets to the, to the weighty stuff. Like, whoever says to somebody in conversation, hey, the Lord is your salvation, but we're going to sing it this morning over and over in the chorus, and that's going to mean something to us in a world of shifting sand, in a world of cultural decay, in a world of unbelievers that we, we just feel like are never going to come to faith, we need to be reminded that the Lord is our salvation. Like Jonah going and preaching, salvation is of the Lord. Well, we need to hear that. And we're doing it while addressing each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
but maybe the language of the church's body of musical literature needs to start creeping into our conversational talk. So there's not such a dichotomy between the spirituality of lobby conversation and you know, Facebook messages and the conversation that happens in the worship gathering. So be filled with the Spirit, and that's going to look like addressing each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Any questions there? Does that make sense? Any Bible examples that stand out in your mind when you think of addressing one another in music? All right. Well, let's look on. Ephesians 5, verse 21. We've gotten verse 19, follow through verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's our next one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. Uh, This word submit is, is somewhat picturesque. It means to arrange under. So there's, there's an authority, and you arrange yourself. You bring yourself under that authority. You've done this when you take a job. You interview. They have no authority over you, but if you say, yes, I'm going to take this job, then you suddenly have a boss. You have arranged yourself under that authority. If you're a woman here and, and chose to marry your husband, uh, he had no authority over you until you arranged yourself under that authority in marriage and said, yes, I see God's plan. I'm willing to submit to that. Um, we understand arranging under authority. Um, it speaks to military rank often in extra biblical literature um, because that's such a common example of rank and authority, uh, the chain of command. Um, it works in, in, in so many areas of our world, our culture even. And yet, if you get to marriage especially, this idea of arranging under an authority becomes this outrageous concept. How dare anybody think those kind of things? Well, we start here in Ephesians 5 with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So everyone in the room here is arranging yourself under, in a sense, the authority of someone else. Now, that's the strict kind of understanding of the word, but realize Paul's not saying everyone is an authority over everyone, for in a sense that would be no one's an authority of anyone. He's speaking to the heart here. Is my heart submitted to, willing to hear from someone? Remember, he's just told us, about speaking to ourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Someone was saying something that I heard, a truth that needs to soak down into my sorrow, into my fear, into my anger. I need to hear what they're saying. Now, following up on that is this submission to one another, where I yield to someone else as though they were an authority. Well, let me ask you, why would... would, Zachary be an authority over John. What authority could he have? Chess game. Oh, oh, 
bringing up the chess game, huh? Do dominating on the, on the checkerboard. Uh, what, what authority does Zachary have to communicate to John? What do you think? How could he speak authoritatively to John? When he holds no rank over him in any job position, no, we're not looking at church authority. David? Um, when speaking from the word to one another. Right, it's from the word. It goes back to the text. You're filled with the spirit. And the spirit guiding us into truth now equips us, in a sense, with the clout, with the authority to speak to someone else. It's not, I know better, I'll tell you. It's, this is what I've learned. This is what I'm gleaning from. This is, this is how I'm being encouraged. Let me speak to you. And while it's not lording authority, it is authoritative because you're filled with the Spirit and you're communicating His truth. So your authority is not inherent. It's not yours. It's derived. When you speak truth, you speak authoritatively, and we should submit to one another when we're speaking truth. David Moore. Um, I was thinking, it reminds me as well of, um, I forget exactly what the reference is, but whoever is least in the kingdom or serving one another, um, being a servant to all, those kinds of ideas of not exalting yourself over others. It's kind of addressing the same part here with submit to one another. It's you're not putting yourself up, but you're making yourself low in a sense. We have multiple passages that tell us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Um, our high thinking is reserved for the sufficiency of Christ and Christ's spirit left here in us. Um, what we have to do is look at this word submitting to one another and realize, once again, it's a participle. It is deriving strength from that original verb, be filled with the Spirit, verse 19. And that will manifest itself in addressing one another. It will manifest itself in singing and making melody. It will address itself in giving thanks always for everything. And it will manifest itself in submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. All those participles are derived from this spirit-filled life. So when we talk about walking in the spirit, keeping in step with the spirit, being filled with the spirit, what we're meaning is our eyes are fixed on Christ, Hebrews 12. We're running this race looking to Jesus. And that spirit of Christ in us is helping us to live right, to do all these things. So if you're filled with that spirit, if you're looking to Jesus and saying, what is his character? How does that manifest itself in my life? This text shows us some of the implications of that spiritual walk. And so you, you might not think as you left here today, that person was spirit-filled. But you might say, I, I was so blessed by what they said to me when I shared that request with them in the lobby. Or just, just hearing the singing, I was just, I don't know, there was just such a comfort for the hardships of the past week. Well, what you're saying is God's spirit was at work through his people. So you might be thankful for the people, but ultimately you, you need to trace that back to this is the work of the spirit. We need to be more mindful of the Spirit's work among us. Um, 
It's, it's the common, ordinary stuff of life, uh, the, the daily righteousness, the, the soft answer that turns away wrath, the, the self-control that is patient with a child. Those are spiritual works. That's the spirit at work. I, I just didn't have a lot of time to, to analyze the revival in Asbury and some little town in Kentucky. Because the reality is, we're told every day to have the Spirit controlling our lives and that power is on display. I should be repenting today of, of a rotten attitude and, and selfishness and such. Uh, it doesn't have to be a, a, a momentum and there's a big swell of it. If there is, praise the Lord. And that has certainly happened throughout history. But, but don't look over there as if, oh, I wonder what the Spirit looks like when he moves. No, he's going to look like this afternoon, you making a right choice and living righteously and being godly, um, submitting to one another. It's going to look like having a, a tender response to your spouse when you know you're not on your best day and they might be on even a worse day. But somebody has to decide to submit to someone. Uh, it's going to look like getting along better with people at work. It's going to look like being a better neighbor. Uh, primarily in the context, it's going to look like getting along with God's people uh, who view things differently and um, whose families and convictions may be far different than yours. And that's okay. You can have this spirit of hearing from them when they speak authoritatively regarding God's truth. So submitting to one another, connected to being filled with the spirit, and then notice how this verse is careful to, to make sure that we define this submission rightly. We're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What do you think that means? How do we submit to others out of reverence for Christ? I mean, that's the least we could do, you know. <laughs> um, obviously, he died for... Paid the ultimate sacrifice. So, one thought on the table, it, it's the least we could do. After all, Christ laid down his life for us. Um, certainly, Christ was the example, yielding his will to the will of the Father in that very hour before going to the cross uh, in the garden. Not my will, but thine be done. So, submission is integral to Christ's saving work. What else? What else might that mean? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, don't necessarily let your personal feelings get in the way. Like maybe, maybe you personally don't respect that person and what they do, but then when you put it in context of Christ, it should change your outlook. Yeah, you, yeah take the truth for what it is because that would be the word of truth. That would be uh, logos, God's word to us. It's Christ's words. And so I think there's something here that when I submit to another, I'm not evaluating them all the time to, you know, I don't know why I should listen to them. They haven't done a very good job at doing that. And well, maybe they've learned something and God's doing a work and they were just used to speak truth to you. Hear that, submit to that truth out of reverence for Christ. That's where the truth came from. It didn't come from that person. You might respect them highly. Well, don't take it from them just because they did it well. Take it from them because it's true. 
because it's right. Uh, there's something there about Christ being the head, the authority, the worthy one. Reverence him in yielding to truth. Paul. I was just thinking too about how the call to submit to one another with reference for Christ that one, there's no counter instruction on how to exercise authority um, over other people. It's only, the command is only to submit to one another out of reference for Christ. There isn't another command for other folks. And then, by the way, the rest of you, when it's not your turn to submit, you should be exercising authority over one another. Um, and just thinking about how, with reference to that, that when we're revering Christ, we're revering someone as Christ, that we're seeing them as being redeemed, that we're seeing them as being a part of the body, a part of Christ's body, and showing respect to them, not necessarily because of their respectableness, but because Christ has chosen to set his affection on that person, um, and in turn, reflecting that same reverence toward Christ, toward that person as well. Yeah, good thoughts. Um, Paul gave us a little trick there of... I don't know if it'd be interpreting or at least applying scripture when, when, when he said the command here is to submit to one another. If you think backwards, the, the command isn't have authority over one another. It, it's, it's right now addressing your heart to be hearing truth from others. Now, we might be able to go elsewhere and find an instruction on speaking the truth and such. Uh, but here, just here... The language of be a receiver of truth. Have a heart that isn't always right, standing up, well, I already knew that. No, just, just yield, just submit, just hear it, uh, and be thankful for it. Um, so that, that, that's helpful just to analyze what is the text actually saying, and then also just be reminded it's, it's, not, it's not the person there. We are bringing the doctrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit to bear here and understanding the life of the church. So when we say the body, what we mean is the spirit working in the body. Um, that's why you can hear from others. Uh, Joshua. Um, talking about the, the fear of Christ, just Proverbs uh, 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. So if you've got just that, that fear of the Lord, would that, would that wisdom give you the ability to maybe know how to appropriately talk to, to whomever for that truth and love aspect? Right. Especially in the language of Proverbs, if the fear of the Lord is this beginning of wisdom, um, then if somebody's speaking truth from the Lord, we should be ready listeners to it. And so you start reading on from Proverbs 1, where the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs 1, 7. You're going to hear a whole lot in that book. Hear, hear, listen, uh, give attention to. Why? Because that's, that's the disposition of wisdom to be learning, to be receiving. Now, this text, Ephesians 5.21, is certainly in the spotlight in what we would call Protestant evangelical circles uh, in the language now that transitions, as Paul does in the next paragraph to marriage, in the language of mutual submission. So there's a, there's a nearly prevailing argument uh, being made in the church that in marriage, 
the language of submission must be out of whack. Like wives don't really have to submit to husbands because after all, Ephesians 5.21 says we submit to one another. So, so actually husbands have to submit to wives as much as wives have to submit to husbands. And so, you know, that's just culturally outdated. It's old fashioned. You know, the Bible isn't telling women today they have to submit to husbands. That's, that's the flow of thought that you're going to see in a lot of uh, even churches as there's this accommodation to this outcry of culture for equality. Now, logically, we start breaking down arguments and we realize, wait a minute, we agree completely on the language of equality if you mean in the image of God, male and female have equal standing with God. In Christ, by faith, there is neither male nor female or Jew or Greek or bond or free. All of, all of those descriptions fall away and you become hidden in Christ. So we recognize equality even in God's creative order. He made male and female in his image. So equality is not really the conversation. Um, we're simply trying to unfold how does God address those in the context of marriage. So in verse 21, we have that participle, submitting to one another, which is tied to being filled with the Spirit. And then we start a new paragraph. And Paul writes in verse 22 to the church, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And the text continues with other instructions to husbands and um, making sure we understand the, the glorious picture that marriage is painting for us. So what are we to do with a text that says, submit to one another, and then in the very next sentence we're told, Wives, you submit to your husbands. Well, just as a, a note of insight into the text, the word submit in verse 22 is not there. It's implied. So the Greek would read, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, is, is how it goes. He's, he's immediately jumping in to a, a context where he's going to apply more specifically this language of submission. He's not discounting verse 21. Whatever he's saying is in conjunction with that. Every believer should have a spirit of hearing truth from someone else when they are an authority because they are speaking Christ's truth. Wives, you're submitting to one another. You submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The explanation is because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, all of the argument settles on the first half of that verse. We ask the first phrase to bear all the weight of our cultural angst. But rarely in any theological kind of conversation are you hearing that same crowd dispute that Christ is the head of the church somehow that gets a pass like that seems legitimate he can do that he can be the authority over 
the church, the head of the body, but using that same language, there, there's, there's something we feel is unjust or unright about God saying, here's the head of this smaller body, the family, the marriage. And so this, this question of submission sits with a sour taste on so many people um, because, or well, oftentimes because they want to make it look like it's in contradiction to submitting to one another. Well, Paul is springboarding into this marriage teaching. And yes, he has said to submit to each other in the spirit. But in verse 22, he adds, but if you're going to marry, you need to understand that structure of authority. God has built a structure there. So remember, our word is to arrange under authority. Well, a wife isn't a mandatory Christian position. Uh, not all women are wives. That, that, that is a covenant that is entered into. And, and we try to make sure there's an understanding of entering into that covenant when it happens. Um, and maybe we need to do better at saying, listen, right now you're a single woman and you should submit to all of the Christian brothers in the church if they are speaking truth to you, just as they should submit to you if you're speaking truth, God's truth. But if you want to enter into marriage and become this category called a wife, then you need to understand God's structure. How has he designed the chain of command or authority? And if you understand that, then this verse really, it just doesn't bear any angst. There's no, there's no concern here. You just recognize this is the structure. Don't join the military if you don't want authority over you or spend a lot of years getting to the top. So, well, I don't know. I guess you have to be president of the United States to get to the top and not have authority over you. And then ultimately the people, I guess, are over you. So you just can't escape authority. Um, So wives, submit to your own husbands, but don't see this as a contradiction to mutual submission. That's the life of the Christian. But there's another category being addressed here. If you're, going, if you're going to enter the context of marriage, then a husband needs to know you have now become the head of a family. And that comes with responsibility as Christ takes responsibility for his church. And wife, that's going to call for submission because that's what the church does for Christ. So this teaching on God's plan for authority in marriage is in conjunction with mutual submission. God isn't saying that husbands know better, so wives do what they say. No, God is saying every individual should have a spirit of humility and honor towards one another. But when it comes to marriage, while that is still true, there is also an authority structure, a clear rank that is not there in our relationship to one another as individual believers. So, you know, any one of you women here, you're you're called to submit to your own husband. But Jane doesn't submit to Adam just because I'm a man. But how do you often hear this argument? Well, why do women have to submit to men? Why are men... Well, the Bible never says that women submit to men. The Bible says if you enter into marriage, you submit to your husband because in that context, there is a chain of command. Otherwise, we're brothers and sisters in Christ and we speak the truth 
with authority and mutually we yield to that truth. So wrestle with this and think this through. You're, you're going to have to hear the argument and realize they're not using that word right, equality. We are for equality made in the image of God. Wait a minute, they're not using the argument. They're saying women submit to men. That's not what we're saying. So you're going to have to think and analyze. Otherwise, you hear all this argument and this rejection of what God has said, and then you're looking, well, it does say submit to one another, so how come husbands don't have to submit to wives? They do as a fellow believer, but that's not the role they've been asked to carry in marriage. The spirit is mutual submission even in marriage, but there's also the rank. There's the authority that God has built into that marriage, and if you step into those roles, you will be responsible to fulfill them. Um, if there are struggles to do that, I would say don't enter into marriage until you understand what God has said. Um, all right, questions. Where, where are we still unclear here? Or any other thoughts? Maybe the same with ladies first. Uh, it's always tough. That, but uh, verse 25 there, it says, uh, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So... Pretty significant responsibility. If the example is Christ, then husbands are not off the hook, uh, which is another argument. The men get to do whatever they want, and women have to submit. Well, not if you read the text. That, That is far from the example of Christ. Roy? It kind of attacks both sides of the common argument common argument is I shouldn't have to submit to him because he's a jerk and does bad things. Well, no, you're not off the hook, but men, don't be a jerk and do bad things. (laughs) Yeah, often the objection that's raised by the other is valid, yet you have to set that aside to address their heart. Like, well, if your spouse never changes, you have to be right before God. But let me take that accusation over here and say, husband, what is this about? What's going on here? Um, so that, that, that's, that's tricky. We, we have to deal with our own heart and get it right, even though our, our concern, our objection may be valid. Um, and that's where you, as husbands and wives, you trust the Lord, knowing that he's going to have to do a work on the spouse, but I have to make sure my heart is right before God, because I will not be judged before God with, well, it says says here you lost your temper and you were, you know, harsh and cruel or you clammed up and ignored your wife. But since she was kind of nagging you a little bit, we're going to let that go. No, it's not how it works. Uh, Husbands, you're called to love your wives and that will be the standard by which you are measured. It doesn't matter who she is or how bad she is. Uh, You were called to do this. Are you pleasing God fulfilling that command to you. Wife, the same thing. I, I, we can talk about your husband or talk to your husband later, but what is your response before God? What has he asked you to do, um, and are you pleasing him there? Um, this does not mean you never ask for help or never say, boy, I would be really helped if some women could talk to my wife. I'd be really helped if some men could talk to my husband. Um, that's all in there in the scripture as well. That's, that's the life of the body. Um, but 
search your heart and get your response right first. We in the church have been really weak. Um, we pretty, I think everywhere I've been has been pretty consistent on this kind of passage. But we don't say to a woman or a man, if they're hitting you, that's wrong. And you need to get godly people involved. We've been very weak at that. So people just stay and get hit or emotionally destroyed. I still struggle with figuring out what the Bible says about emotional abuse and verbal abuse. Even physical abuse isn't addressed except for you have to go looking for a principle. But we still need to be pretty clear about that because you know in this church people are getting hit. People are being abused. It's just the truth. It may be, because um, I can't say I know. <laughs> um, I think the reality of what you're saying is we do have to make sure people don't just hear uh, a surface conversation about wives always have to submit and, um, and contribute to a spirit of men don't have to lead or do anything. And... Um, so, but I, I think an honest reading of the text, when you see husbands love your wives and wives submit to your husbands and both of them are as Christ or as the church, it becomes pretty clear there's, there's a standard there. Um, I think all of us are going to have to wrestle with the people we know, the stories we hear. Um, your friend shares a burden. The marriage is hard. Um, and, and then you, you immediately find yourself on this spectrum where no one's story is the same, and yet truth is. And so you have to take truth and begin applying it. And, and you might take a truth. And, you know, some of the hard truth is, li- listen, I don't know what God's going to do in your marriage. I don't know if your spouse is ever going to change, but I want to start with your heart. Where is your heart? Well, then you might realize their heart really is trying to get it right and maybe there is some kind of abuse going on. Well, abuse is another whole spectrum that we're trying to figure out. Like Roy said, how, what is verbal and emotional abuse? So uh, just know that this is, this is foundational, but from this foundation, because of human corruption by sin, there are going to be endless conversations um, in your own marriage, getting it right, uh, and you might think you and your spouse are both striving to do the best you can to understand this and get it right, and most people probably think you are getting it right, and yet you're still battling it. So how much more so for immature believers, for a marriage with a believer and an unbeliever? Um, there, there are going to be all kinds of challenges, um, and we just need to know the scriptures are sufficient to address them, even when it is, you know, as simple as calling 911 and having the police intervene for physical stuff. Um, so there's probably more conversation to be had there, especially as marriage degenerates, as individualism rises, and it's, you know, we're just not seeing the family esteemed like it was in decades gone by. Well, that's all right. 
God's equipped us and we have the Spirit. And remember, all of this is still flowing out of being filled with the Spirit so that we can even understand this submission, um, loving our wives, submitting to our husbands. Um, A lot there, but you be ready to, to serve whatever relationships you can serve, knowing you might quickly get in over your head and and that's where you pull in more help. Uh, so let's get a few other thoughts here, Daniel and Paul. I was just going to say that if we think of our world in three different spheres of authority, we have the family, we have the church, and we have the government. If the government's there to punish the evildoer, as we read in Romans 13, that when we do transgress in a civil matter, um, a man beating on his wife, there should be a call to the police, because that is now against the law. In the church, we should be able to call each other out to higher levels of, yeah, that's not okay, let's talk about what we're going to do about that and and breathe into that life. But even within the sphere of the family, there are specific responsibilities we should be calling the men out to. Um, And this can be seen all the way back to uh, Genesis 2 um, and even in the fall in Genesis 3. So you you have some things that are called out specifically and everything that's talked about here in Ephesians 5 is calling back to what was talked about in Genesis 2 and 3 about, you know, the wife will seek to have authority over her husband. But then it talks here especially about how the husband has got a sacrificial uh, approach to love for his wife that pictures Christ in the church. so again, I, I think part of the problem that Roy is calling out is I'm not sure that we're engaging the right sphere when the, those kinds of activities are taking place. Um, if we're still having issues with it, we found out some guy beat his wife. It's time to get the police involved at that point. Now we can still breathe into him as a church, but he's transgressed a civil uh, crime at that point. Right. We have to remember the the, the words are small. You know, submitting as the church submits to Christ its head, loving our wives as Christ loved the church. But those are definitive descriptions that immediately show us this is the realm of what marriage is. You know, when somebody's physically abusing a woman, that, that, it, that doesn't fit what God says. This is what a husband is. This is what marriage is. So you're not protecting marriage. You're not esteeming marriage by saying, keep doing that. That's not how it is defined right there in the text. That is not what covenant marriage is. So uh, lean hard into the words. Make sure we understand them. Um, even, Even think back. I was trying to look into Malachi there where some of the translations are God hates divorce. Well, what he hates is the unfaithfulness, the violence, the the not treating right. He doesn't see that as what he said marriage is. Um, So, yes, we could argue linguistically or logically that the divorcing God hates, but what he hates is a heart that doesn't accept what God says is faithfulness and love in marriage. So the big rage isn't against divorce, it's against the sinful heart. The same as when Jesus was asked questions and he said, no, because of their sinful hearts, he wrote the bill of divorcement. Jesus doesn't address the divorcement, he addresses the hearts of the people. Um, So we can't let unmarriage things happen 
and call it marriage and we need to protect marriage because we esteem marriage because that's what we do. No, we don't. We esteem Christ who shows us how to love each other in the context of marriage. Um, Don't esteem things that don't fit that picture and certainly be clear uh, wrestling through these scriptures so that people aren't confused about mutual submission versus submission in marriage. And when, when the teaching of the word goes soft in the church, then we are going to have, as Roy said, these problems where, and there, and there are churches where abusive men have been tolerated in positions of leadership and such because nobody is truly embracing the text when it says we're to submit to each other when we hear the truth. Uh, to submit <clears throat> when there is emotional or abuse like that is a terrible picture of Christ and, and the church. And so if we are being a testimony to the world, we should you don't put up with that because it's, it's making a joke of the church. Right. Read this full paragraph. And this is the mystery. I'm speaking of Christ and his church. So if we're not careful in our virtuous kind of passion for esteeming marriage, we esteem something that that is not marriage. It's not the mystery of Christ and his church if a man is abusive in in any way on the spectrum. Now, it doesn't mean every label of abuse is criminal or, or such, but it would call for serious intervention and a great need of discipleship and sanctification and such. Um, But read the whole passage and and make sure we get to the end that all this marriage stuff is temporary and it all goes away in eternity because it's serving us with a picture of that glory. Um, So don't make the earthly marriage so lofty uh, that we lose sight of what it's actually supposed to picture. Um, and this, that, this argument is what I, I think is foundational to understanding any conversation about divorce and remarriage and such in the Bible. Because if, if we're just against divorce because it harms the picture of marriage, well then you're kind of arguing that anything goes as long as you don't divorce. And that doesn't seem to be what the text says. Um, there are strict definitions there for husbands, wives, and marriage and what's there should picture Christ in his church. Now, it will never be perfect, so uh, there is a lot of room to do some heavy thinking. Um, but, but if you have questions of abuse and don't know what to say, or, then, then just you start asking. You get help. Um, you know, talk to someone you think may know. You can talk to any of the elders. You know, when it comes to some situation and you're concerned just don't bottle that up. Just just ask. There, there are people that even I would call to ask questions about, like, when is this abuse? Because I'm not, I'm not claiming to be an expert. Um, but with help, with understanding, with those conversations, and obviously being filled with the Spirit, we can get to places where we can, we can help. Um, so don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't be intimidated by it. Um, first and foremost, start with really wrestling with these texts that seem kind of simple if you grew up in the church, you know, be filled with the Spirit and don't get drunk and sing songs to each other and then something about submission. I think it's for wives. No, there's more to it than that. Um, So wrestle with this and know what God's Word has said. 
um, because there is our foundation. That we really believe when Peter says what we have and the words that God has given us are everything we need for living life in a godly way. So when you get stumped by life, uh, then go back to the word and figure out what do I need? What do I need? So, you know, I think there's also an interesting aspect because so much emphasis is put on the by submitting. But it's, the second part for the husbands is actually the harder <coughs> command, if you will, right? To love as Christ love. I mean, that's, that's actually a much, it's fairly easy to submit to another person, quite honestly. I mean, maybe no. you feel that way all the time. But it's much, it's, it's much harder. All the wives are like... I was in the military. <laughs> but but it, it's much harder to love like Christ love. Like, there is something more active about it. Uh, a sacrificial love looks more active. Submission feels a little more passive. What we can know is Christ did both. So the hope, the hope is whoever you are and whatever you're called to do in marriage, you can look to Christ and see that he did that well. And he did it so that you can do it. That's the righteousness of Christ that we now can live out. So as hard as it may be, and whether you think the other person's job is easier or harder, God has made you the way he wants you to be. And he's put you in marriage and Whatever that marriage looks like, he is using you right there. Um, and sometimes his primary tool in even shaping your spouse is by your obedience. We see in First Peter there, you do what's right before God. Last word? I was just going to say that it's easy to look at submission and in the call to love from a very external motions of what you're doing. Like, my husband wants this, so I'll submit to him in this physical capacity of, I guess we will have lunch meat sandwiches today, even though that's not what I wanted. Or, yes, I'm going to do this deferential thing to my wife because I love her. And to speak, you know, kind of Puritan language, but even really kind of the language of the Old Testament is that these are about our affections. And that when we're talking about submission, that it's a, it's a disposition of the heart. When we're talking about love, it's not just an outward motion. It's not less than those things, but it's a lot more than those things that God is after our hearts as men to love our wives, that there is a true affection um, that, that springs forth because that submission, that love is, and going back to what you're saying, Adam, that it's going back to this is a picture of the church. Just like it's very easy for people to show up, sit in a pew, do the thing, and leave, which is very akin to, I'm going to do these motions of submission. I'm going to do these motions of love. Well, there is no actual true affection that guards and guides and governs our, our actions throughout the day, throughout the week. Um, yeah. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, may it govern and even inflame our affections and our passions. Uh, may we be set ablaze by your spirit to do what is good and right, especially in this context of our marriages and our homes. Uh, give us 
a fuller understanding by your word today on this filling with the spirit that will produce these beautiful expressions speaking to each other as we sing this morning of giving thanks, of making melody, of submitting to one another in the truth that is shared, um, knowing that all of this is your design for the mutual goodness uh, of being a part of your body. Thank you for Christ our head. Remind each one of us here, regardless of our marital status, regardless of our gender, that we can look to Christ and run our race this week with patience, with endurance. Thank you for that hope, hope of Christ in us. We pray this in his name. Amen.